We are talking about brain health and how to preserve yours. Our guest today is the amazing Dr. Annie Fenn, OBGYN turned chef and brain health specialist. Annie explains how what we eat drastically affects the health of our brain as we age and how good food choices can minimize our risk of Alzheimer's and other dementias. Listen on to hear what is good for your brain health and what you might want to avoid. Want to get amazing insights and perspectives from local health and fitness professionals here in Jackson Hole? This is the podcast, and I am your host, Dr. Laura Wright. Welcome, everyone, to Health in the Hole. I am here today with Annie Fenn of the Brain Health Kitchen. Annie, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Laura. I'm excited to talk to you. So let's talk first, what's your background and then how did you get into brain health? Because I think you came from kind of an interesting perspective. Yes, exactly. There's not that many OBGYNs who are now out there trying to help people prevent Alzheimer's disease. So my path is a little bit, a little bit different, but basically I moved to Jackson Hole back in 1994. And Mm -hmm. I came here from Chicago where I trained as an OBGYN and I set up shop and practiced medicine here for about 20 years. So I had a nice long medical practice, delivered many of the babies here who are now in their 20s, late teens. Yeah, which is super fun. And, you know, some, at some point in my practice, I was specializing just in menopause in the last eight or so years. I gave up obstetrics. And I got a certification to be a menopausal health expert. Mm -hmm. And I was spending all of my time listening to women and helping them with the transition of menopause. So I have to say that that's when my interest in brain health really got sparked because my patients were coming to me with, of course, hot flashes and sleep disorders Mm -hmm. and, you know, things of that sort, like you would expect at menopause. But the biggest thing that my patients were struggling with is brain fog. Okay. And it was then that I started to get really interested in looking into the research about, you know, what, what physically makes our, um, you know, our emotions and our mental capacities change. And so my patients taught me a lot during that period of time. How did you get into like the menopause population? Was that just something you loved and wanted to do? Or was it a need in the area? It was definitely a need in the area. It always been a strong interest in mine when I was mm-hmm. in training. I actually did a grand rounds in perimenopause back when I was a resident. That was before perimenopause was even an acknowledged word. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I always had a really strong interest in it. And in you know, my patients, it was just this really, just really special situation with my practice where, you know, I was the same age as a lot of my patients. We all had our kids together, we went through postpartum together, mm-hmm. and then we were all kind of going through menopause together. And it was also a time in history where there was a lot of unknowns about what to do about menopause, mm-hmm. whether hormone therapy was safe or not. And women were just really struggling. You know, the whole alternative hormone market was just starting to open up and that was new. And so, you know, I, I developed this expertise in it because yes, there was a need. And also because it just really resonated with my patients that, that that's what I should be doing. Got it. Okay. So you were doing that and then you got out of the practice with the intent to retire or with their intent to start something new? Well, you know, I never really had this plan to retire, but it did happen uh, about, you know, 20 years in. There was a point in the practice where I just wanted to use a different part of my brain. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying that I was 
bored, but there were so many things I wanted to do that I was so tied down to my schedule. As you know, as a busy clinician, you know, patients want to see you and then you're booked out for six, eight weeks in advance. And then you find you have no flexibility whatsoever to take a day off or take a course or travel or do things mm -hmm. like that. And so I was feeling the grind of that, that day in day out schedule that a lot of doctors experience. And part of me just really wanted to go to culinary school. It had been a lifelong dream yeah. of mine and I'd always been a cook and had always been writing down recipes. I even started a, a blog called Jack's Hall Foodie while I was still a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, so with I all your had, free time and two kids, yeah. all my free time. <laughs> and I just had this, this, I don't know. I just had this urge to do something different. So that's what I did uh, in the summers when my kids would go to summer camp, I went to culinary school and I, I really had no plan for it other than just to have fun and mm -hmm. get some new skills. And then when I came back from culinary school, I really wanted to start teaching some of these helpful cooking skills in the community. So I started as, a, as an instructor, a culinary instructor at Central Wyoming College. Okay. And I started teaching healthy cooking in the community, like how to eat from the Mediterranean diet, how to cook Moroccan food, how to cook healthy Mexican food. I had attended culinary school in Central Mexico where the, the food is actually very plant-based and super okay. healthy. Um, I was going to ask, because I've been to culinary school as well, and a lot of the food we learned to cook was not very healthy. That was not a uh, priority there. Exactly, exactly. And so I was teaching these culinary classes, and that was around the time that Dr. Martha Stern was putting together her BrainWorks program. Mm -hmm. She's the cognitive health specialist at St. John's Hospital, and she was putting together a program, which was really cool, and I was super excited to be involved with it because it was really the first community-based dementia prevention program in the US. It was modeled after a program from a friend of hers in, in Boston at Harvard. And so she was putting together BrainWorks, which means you get a group of healthy adults who don't have dementia, mm -hmm. and then you do a boot camp sort of experience with them to teach them all the skills that we know based on science to prevent dementia. So okay. I teamed up with Martha to do the culinary classes. Very and cool. the culinary classes for BrainWorks became really popular. So people started asking me to do them on the side as well. So around this time, so this was 2015. And, you know, up until this time, there was honestly not a lot of data about how what you eat can actually prevent the risk of Alzheimer's or dementia mm -hmm. down the line. Um, somewhere in 2015, that shifted because some very important studies came out that put up good data showing that the Mediterranean diet is probably the strongest dietary pattern to follow if you want to reduce your risk of dementia by as much as 53%. So, you know, I really had one of those epiphanies that people talk about, where here I am, I'm interested in food, I'm a doctor, and I have this burgeoning interest in brain health and Alzheimer's prevention. And the MIND diet study comes out in 2015. And that was the same year my mom was diagnosed with an early form of Alzheimer's. Okay, I was gonna ask if you had like a family relation that experienced it as well. Yeah, and it all happened in the same year. So, you know, you'd I guess you'd have to hit me over the head with a brick if you want to be more subtle, but mm -hmm. you know, I really, I really started to believe that this is what I should do. I should use my medical background and my culinary skills to really show people how to eat so that they can prevent this. Cause it's largely preventable is what we're finding. Which is awesome. Yes, because we've got some family health history and just learning that is nice because it's not something I want for myself, for, for my mom, anyone else. Exactly. Exactly. It's a very powerful thing when my culinary students learn 
that they can reduce the risk of dementia by as much as 50%. And now some, some researchers are looking at reducing it down by 90%. So we're learning more and more every year. You know, fast forward a couple years when I decided to do this full time, I launched Brain Health Kitchen as a website, and then I launched it as its own cooking school. And so I started teaching not only in Jackson Hole, but traveling all over the country and in Europe as well to teach people how to eat to prevent dementia. Cool. Are you doing like virtual workshops right now or? I've been doing quite a few of those this year during the pandemic. Yeah, I have to say it's been a nice break for me personally not to have to travel so much because mm -hmm. I, I love Jackson so much that I just really am jealous of any time that I have to spend away. Um, and so, yeah, I've been home a lot more and, and doing a lot more virtual, uh, virtual classes for sure. So how do different foods affect our brain health, right? I think, you know, sometimes we think, oh, it all goes into my gut. My brain is something separate. How is it that they do affect it? Is it, you know, is it the plaques? Is it, you know, proteins? Well, you know, the way I look at it is the underlying factor in Alzheimer's disease, especially and I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to say that we know exactly what causes Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. but there's, there's probably several pathways to Alzheimer's. And the most important underlying factor is chronic inflammation. So when you look at the foods we eat and how they affect our bodies, there's definitely foods that are pro-inflammatory, mm -hmm. pro not being good, but pro being bad, whereas they actually kick off a cascade in your body of all those inflammatory factors. And that can lead to inflammation in your blood vessels which is detrimental for your brain and also, you know, directly in your brain. So I look at the food that we eat as this balance between, you know, throwing all these inflammatory factors at our, at our bodies mm -hmm. and our brains and then our immune system and our bodies have to mitigate that somehow. They have to flush the toxins out. They have to counteract the inflammation. They have mm -hmm. to work really hard to do damage control from an inflammatory diet. And, and then you balance that with a neuroprotective way of eating. And the neuroprotective way of eating is paying attention to certain fatty acids, um, the phytonutrients in plant foods, especially the flavonoids, which are super important in brain health. The flavonoids are this big class of compounds mm -hmm. that we're finding that if you eat a diet that's rich in these flavonoids, you definitely have a reduced risk of Alzheimer's. And the flavonoids are the things that make fruits and vegetables colorful. Okay. So getting back to what, you know, nutritionists have been telling us for years to eat, eat the, the rainbow. rainbow, but this is why they have flavonoids and the flavonoids are specifically brain healthy in terms of combating inflammation, the, the deposition of amyloid plaque in the brain, which is, if not the root cause, you know, one of the results of the inflammation that causes Alzheimer's. So mm -hmm. just looking at this balance, there's neuroprotective foods, there's inflammatory foods, um, I'm not going to say that I'm never going to eat another inflammatory food like a French fry or um, a sugary drink. I might have something like that, but I definitely want to have most of the foods that I consume in the neuroprotective category. Mm -hmm. And then along with these, you talked some about Alzheimer's. What other types of dementia does this type of diet help with? Well, um, a really important thing for your, that your listeners might not know is that dementia is an umbrella term of which Alzheimer's is 70%. Okay. So most of the dementia in our country is Alzheimer's disease. However, we know from doing autopsy studies on large populations of people that people that have Alzheimer's 50% of the time also have vascular dementia. And vascular dementia is the second most common cause of dementia. 
and that's due to problems with our blood vessels. Um, it used to be called multi-infarct dementia because um, they're like mini strokes would mm -hmm. compromise blood flow to the brain and eventually lead to cognitive decline. So Alzheimer's and vascular dementia are really the big ones we're looking at in terms of prevention. There's, a, there's some smaller types of dementia that don't, you know, don't, don't make up as much. And they're actually a little bit harder to study from the nutritional standpoint. And it's harder to find data um, you know, to say that they absolutely reduce. So if we're trying to prevent Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, we're getting probably 85% of all the dementias. Okay. Do you know what percent of population ends up with Alzheimer's or dementia right now or what, uh, like at what age? Because yeah, it seems I mean, fairly common, <laughs> too common. The thing is, it's fairly common. It's getting more common. So there's mm -hmm. 5 million Americans now living with dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease. And by 2050, that number is expected to be 15 million. I'm sorry, 50 million, 50 million. Mm -hmm. um, wow. And so it's reflective of, you know, our aging population in the U.S. And this mm -hmm. is happening right here in Teton County in our community. There's more people over the age of 65 than there were before. And so you just got this huge number of people entering age groups where they're vulnerable to cognitive decline at a greater rate. Um, mm -hmm. So by the time you are 65 years old, your risk of getting dementia is somewhere around one in five. And by the time you're 85, it's actually one in two. Wow. Yeah, I'm just like thinking of all my family members and how old they are. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you think, he, I mean, it's, it's like this other places too, but here in Jackson, if you sit in a room of 10, 65 year olds, these are not, you know, people that you would consider old. These yeah, are people that are out skiing, that are, you know, just, just really um, aging super gracefully and well. So when mm -hmm. I think of, you know, people in their 60s starting to get dementia, it makes me even more committed to helping people prevent it with simple things like nutrition. Um, so now if you're a woman, so that's, that's men and women combined. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman, your risk is even higher because Alzheimer's disease, two thirds of all Alzheimer's victims are female. So it affects women at a greater proportion than it does men. And do we know why? You know, there's some, been some good research on this in the last couple of years. Everyone used to think it was just because women live longer than men. Mm -hmm. That's really not so true anymore. That gap between women and men's lifespans is actually getting more and more narrow. Mm -hmm. So what we think is happening now is that, again, going back to menopause, there seems to be a couple vulnerable time periods in a woman's life where the process of cognitive decline can get started mm -hmm. and then and then maybe festers later. Perimenopause is one of them. And the latest data on that shows that estrogen is protective of the brain. And when your estrogen circuitry starts to go haywire, where your levels are going up and they're going down, it changes the way your brain metabolizes glucose. Okay. And that can precipitate deposition of amyloid protein, which is this protein that starts to gum up the brain over time. So certainly hormonal fluctuations around the time of menopause is one. Um, another one is sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hate to think about all the sleep deprivation my brain has suffered from being an OB-GYN. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, going through and then, med school. And... and then being a mom, but um, I try not to think about that. 
and I don't want to scare anyone if they've also had, you know, bad sleep for many years in their life. But sleep deprivation is a huge factor in terms of increasing your Alzheimer's risk. So the more years in your life that you've had poor sleep, the greater your risk of Alzheimer's disease. And women seem to have, you know, the, they don't have the market on sleep deprivation, but there are times in their lives where they don't sleep well. Mm-hmm. And menopause is certainly one, and the postpartum period is another. Interesting. Wow. Um, age-related cognitive decline, is that a thing as well? Is it something that we should expect, is, or does that just have to do with increased inflammation? Well, I would, I would submit, and the science supports, that we don't have to lose any of our cognitive faculties just because we're getting older. So age-related cognitive decline is actually a pathological process. Um, there are things that you get better at, that you are better at when you're a little bit younger, mm-hmm. um, in terms of your executive function might be a little bit quicker, your word retrieval might be better, People as they get older, they have what those they call those senior moments where you know you see someone's face and you can't bring up their name, we can't bring a word out of thin air. And all of that is normal. And it may have more to do with the lack of paying attention to what you're doing in terms of talking to someone or listening or remembering someone's name rather than actual cognitive decline that's pathological. So as we get older, we just need to pay attention more. We need to do less multitasking. Mm-hmm. I've done way too much of in my life. I'm trying, trying to cure myself mm-hmm. of doing multiple things at once. But if you unitask, you're much more likely to have um, less of these cognitive symptoms as you get older. Okay. So then let's go into what foods you said, flavonoids, what other foods are neuroprotective? What do you recommend? What is the Mediterranean diet maybe? Sure. Well, the Mediterranean diet, it has really has the most data behind it in terms of being a neuroprotective diet, in terms of one that actually has been shown in large populations of people to reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. And these studies are really hard to do, as you might suspect. You have to do food questionnaires. You have to follow people over decades. They have to be a fairly homogeneous group of people so that you um, can correct for other factors. But there are some excellent Mediterranean diet studies so what happened with the MIND diet is the researchers at, researchers at Rush looked at all the Mediterranean diet studies and said, hey, what do you take all the Mediterranean diet foods and then you select out the ones that we know are most brain specific based on single studies that they are neuroprotective. Mm-hmm. Like one food group would be berries, another one would be leafy greens, another one would be fish and seafood. Those are three really important brain food categories. And so with the MIND diet, what they did was they took the most brain-specific Mediterranean foods and they grouped them into 10 brain-healthy food groups. And then they identified five brain-unhealthy food groups. And they put up a template of how often people um, should try to hit the mark for getting these good foods and avoiding these bad ones. Mm-hmm. So when the MIND diet um, followed over almost 1,000 people over five years, what they found was that the people that ate more of the 10 brain healthy food groups and less of the five brain unhealthy ones were able to reduce the risk of dementia dramatically, like 53%. And these are healthy people that don't have dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, it's a very teachable way to show people how to eat. So I like to use the 10 brain healthy food groups. It's probably the best data we have. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just mentioned the first three. The other ones, like in the Mediterranean diet, 
leafy greens are lumped together with vegetables. But in the Mayan diet, leafy greens are their own food group, along with vegetables. Berries are the only fruit that's mentioned in the Mayan diet study. Um, and that's because they've got all those pigments and flavonoids and they're low in sugar. So they have a low glycemic index. So berries have a lot of things going for them. Um, and they also have a lot of data behind them, like specific data that shows if you eat two half cup servings of berries a week, then your memory will be better than if you don't do that in 15 years. So really good solid data on berries. Mm -hmm. um, beans and legumes is another important food group. You know, it's um, high in fiber, it's high in phytonutrients. Um, it's really important to have a fiber rich diet. The, I mean, if there's one thing about the brain healthy diet that I would say is, is just most important in terms of um, how it react, makes your blood cholesterol behave is that it's rich in fiber. So it drives down blood cholesterol. There's a strong association between having high LDL or the bad cholesterol and getting Alzheimer's later in life. So beans and legumes, good plant-based source of protein. It's one of the food groups of all the blue zones on earth. Um, the people that live to be, you know, hundred and those people don't have dementia or Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. Um, Another important food group is um, nuts and seeds. And nuts are amazing because they have the, the right type of fatty acids that we think are brain and heart healthy, as well as tons of little phytonutrients. And so that's why I favor plant-based milks over dairy milk. Um, there's honestly not a lot of dairy products in the mind diet or in the brain healthy diet in general, because uh, dairy products tend to have more saturated fat and plant-based milks and cheeses just seem to have um, that fat profile that the brain really loves, which is mostly monounsaturated, a little bit of polyunsaturated, and not much saturated fat at all. So nuts is a big one. Um, red wine is actually a, a brain-healthy food group. I was gonna ask you because I saw that on your blog, so yeah. that's, that's always good to know. But there's a caveat here. If you're right. a red wine drinker, you might be really excited about that, but in the original mind diet study because now there is a second trial going on that is following people in a randomized placebo controlled fashion which is going to be really great um, but they decided to drop red wine as a brain healthy food group because it's just too complicated to get people to understand especially in america that a little bit of red wine is good but the amount that is recommended for brain health is five ounces a day mm -hmm. And a lot of people just don't understand that like five ounces is good, but 10 ounces is really not good. And when you start to go above that, you're really doing the opposite to your brain and causing some inflammatory reactions. So they got rid of the red wine, but obviously it's a big part, important part of the Mediterranean diet. Mm -hmm. And the difference is in Mediterranean countries, the way they drink is that they always have small, they're really having very small amounts of wine and always with food and always in social situations. Mm -hmm. Um, it's quite different than the way Americans drink on the most part. Are the so. wines different at all in terms of, I know like California tends to have like higher alcohol content. Does that make a difference or is it just really the amounts that we have? Well, the difference in the wine, it, I don't know if there's a difference in the alcohol content per se, but a lot of the wines are high in polyphenols. Um, so the polyphenols are another one of those phytonutrients that combat inflammation. And the Mediterranean diet is thought to be this, it's a lifestyle where all of these factors interplay in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there's all the phytonutrients from the plant-based diet. And then there's the essential fatty acids like DHA, and EPA from the fish and seafood. 
And then there's a little bit of red wine to wash it down, which is also might thin your blood slightly. Mm -hmm. So you're less likely to get a heart attack or a stroke or have some sort of dementia related to that. Um, and then there's the olive oil, which helps you absorb all the fat soluble nutrients in the food. So it seems to be that there's a system with the Mediterranean diet that is really efficient in terms of getting your body to utilize all those, all those good substances. And then olive oil, of course, is, is the, uh, the last brain healthy food group. Oh, and chicken, chicken and poultry. Chicken. Oh, okay. That's it. I, I just like, don't like chicken. I don't know what's right. Like chicken, turkey, not my thing. Seafood's great. Um, how do people eat a Mediterranean diet if they, you know, live in Jackson and are trying to eat local? It's not difficult to do. We're actually getting really high quality seafood flown in here. And the interesting thing about the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet is that the mind diet showed that you can prevent dementia with just one serving of seafood a week. So whereas the Mediterranean diet really asks you to have two or three servings of fish or seafood mm -hmm. a week, that's tough here, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and not fried. You know, fried seafood really, um, when you fry the seafood, it damages the EPA and the DHA, which is stuff that you really need for your brain. So unfried seafood, um, but just one serving a week is actually all you need. And that might be just a five ounce piece of salmon. It might be, you know, half a pound of mussels which are really inexpensive and they're, you can get them at the grocery store pretty much any day of the week. Um, there's really good high quality seafood here. You can also use canned seafood, anchovies, sardines, canned mm -hmm. salmon are super good sources of EPA and DHA as well and really inexpensive. So once people figure out the fish and seafood aspect of the, you know, the brain healthy diet, it's really, everything else is totally available here. Um, you know, it's good to be savvy with the fruits and the vegetables and shop the farmer's markets and shop what all of our local farms have to offer through the season, which is, you know, July through October. Great. It's not that long. But, um, but you know, I, I put up an inordinate amount of blueberries and blackberries and raspberries once the farmer's markets are closing down. Because mm -hmm. I like to buy these berries when they're peak of ripeness in season. And also it's so much more, less expensive. Mm-hmm. So I freeze them on baking sheets and then I put them into baggies and I will have berries for the entire rest of the year to make for smoothies and desserts or just snacking. Um, so it does require a little bit of forethought with the fruits and vegetables, but it can be done. And then what foods, what foods do you not recommend? You said five foods and then we'll talk about maybe like preparation. Right. Of food. So the five brain unhealthy food groups are the ones that you probably could guess. The first one is fried and fast food. And one thing that's great about the mind diet, it doesn't tell you that you can't ever, never, ever have like a cheeseburger or a French fry again. Mm -hmm. It just says, you know, don't eat fast food more than once a week. Don't eat something fried more than once a week. You know, get it down to that bare minimum where if you give it up entirely, you probably won't even notice. Mm -hmm. um, so fried and fast food. And the reason that's a brain unhealthy food group is because when you cook food with high heat, especially if you're using an unhealthy oil, like some oils um, have a lot of inflammatory products in them, like omega-6 fatty acids. And so what this does to the food is it creates advanced glycation end products or AGEs. And AGEs are these glycotoxins that accumulate in our foods based on how we cook them. And AGEs are, have been found in the brains, the brain cells of Alzheimer's victims. They're, I think of them as like these molecules that just tear through your blood vessels in your brain and cause inflammation wherever they go. 
Um, they're just troublemakers. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we probably both learned in culinary school about making food delicious is the Maillard reaction, right? Yes. Yeah. You take a steak and you put it on the grill and you wait until it's crispy and brown and caramelized. Mm -hmm. And that caramelization process creates AGEs. And so if you take that step further and you deep fry something or sear it super hot in a pan, um, you're, you're developing a lot of these AGEs. So you, you, the more AGEs you have in your diet, the greater your risk of Alzheimer's. It's okay. really as simple as that. So I would be really careful about the fried and fast foods. That's one's important. So like so, seared scallops, that's probably my favorite seafood. The searing is probably the issue though. You know, I would sear it in something like an avocado oil that has a high smoke point. Right, we have that. And when you start with a seafood or a vegetable, it's a food that's inherently low in AGEs to start with as opposed to meats and things like um, cheeses. Okay. Uh, processed cheeses, processed dairy, especially. So yeah, just don't slather it with mayonnaise before you do it. Perfect, I won't do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be the worst thing you could do. Um, or could get in bacon fat, wouldn't that be bad too? Uh, yeah, I mean, the saturated fat is a tricky one because I know a lot of people thrive on having saturated fat in their diet, mm -hmm. but the data, for the MIND diet and other studies really show that the higher the, the, higher the uh, amount of saturated fat in your diet, the greater your risk of Alzheimer's disease. It's directly related. That's why the brain healthy diet is primarily monounsaturated fatty acids. Like you get from nuts and seeds and avocados and olives and things like that. So that's why the number two and the number three brain unhealthy food groups are cheese and butter. And they really take a hard line on cutting back on butter and cheese because, mm. you know, for every teaspoon of high fat dairy that you have in your diet that you cut back on, you, um, you can lower your LDL and it, it's been associated, there's a direct association with less Alzheimer's disease as well. So, I mean, you don't have to give it up entirely, but I certainly use a lot less butter than I used to. The mind mm -hmm. diet guidelines are less than a tablespoon a day. And I've learned to sub in olive oil and pretty much all of my baking and most of my cooking. So yeah. now when I have butter, I usually get butter from the farmer's market and I get like a really nice grass fed type. I was going to um, ask, is it their difference for like butter for meat if it's grass fed? How much have they tested those types of red meats and dairy products versus? Absolutely. Just... I mean, the, the difference with the grass fed butter is sure you're getting the same amount of saturated fat, mm -hmm. but you're also getting all those alpha linoleic acids those omega-3 fatty acids that are beneficial. So you're turning it from, a, you know, a food that's just like pure fat into one that actually has some nutritional benefit. So, you know, when you go to the farmer's market and you see the butter that they put out, some of it is super yellow. Yeah. That yellow is the ALAs. Those are the omega-3 fatty acids from the grasses that the, that the cows eat. Mm -hmm. You know, like at Cosmic Apple Gardens, they have a biodynamic farm. So it all just gets recycled back into their cows. So um, yeah, I, I just buy really good butter. I buy European brands of butter as well because in Europe, the cows are only fed grass. They're mm -hmm. not fed, you know, um, soy or corn or other types of feed that have inflammatory substances in them. So yeah, just buy really good butter and use less of it. That's mm -hmm. what I do. Um, it's not my standard anymore for cooking. Olive oil is. And then cheese, the, uh, the guidelines for my diet have changed recently and it used to be one ounce a week. Which That's is not a lot. That's not a lot at all. <laughs> yeah. So don't get too excited, but they did change it to two ounces. Okay. Which is really not a lot. But um, I mean, I would say the main difference 
that I personally had because I love cheese and I used to mm -hmm. snack on it all the time. And I felt like I needed the calories too when I was, you know, exercising outside in the cold and all that. Mm -hmm. But I don't snack on cheese anymore. Cheese can be kind of addictive. You have one little cube and then you have to have another little cube and you have to have another little cube. Mm -hmm. And so I reserve cheese now for special occasions. Like I might serve it for dessert over the holidays. Um, or I might go to the farmer's market and get a really nice wheel of soft creamy cheese. But I don't, I don't do the big bag of shredded cheddar on a regular basis. I'm not, I'm not consuming large amounts of cheese because I really want the saturated fat in my diet to be under 10% and ideally under 6%. Okay. So is that all then, five of them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the one we left out was pastries and sweets. Oh, of course. Yeah. But like, again, the mind diet's not saying you can't ever have a cookie or a croissant mm -hmm. saying, you know, let's have maybe less than five of those a week, less than five servings a week. And things like wheat with gluten, is that, is there any effect of that? Oh yeah, that I, I forgot to mention that whole grains is actually one of the 10 brain healthy food groups. Okay. Um, people. So I know you already know this, but it's, it's always confusing for a lot of people that, you know, there's a lot that's written out there that says that grains are bad for the brain, right? Like grain brain and all mm -hmm. those books about that. And when Dr. Perlmutter wrote that book, um, it was super interesting. And as time goes on and studies have looked at his data versus others, you know, he was partially right when it comes to grains being bad for the brain. Um, but it's only really the refined grains that are bad for the brain. So he took his patients off all grains and as a neurologist, he saw them get better. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, but what's probably happening is that in the United States, 98% of what Americans eat that's grain is made from processed white flour. So you get people off all their junky grains and they're definitely gonna get better in some way, shape or form. Their metabolic health is gonna improve, they're gonna lose weight, their um, potential brain health is gonna improve as well. Um, but whole grains are different. Whole grains are minimally processed grains like farro and black rice and brown rice, um, quinoa, even though it's a seed, we consider it a grain, amaranth. And these are really incredibly nutrient dense foods that are inexpensive and are used around the world in the blue zones mm -hmm. where the healthiest people live. And you know, unless you're allergic to it or you have celiac disease, I probably wouldn't recommend just throwing out that whole group of foods. Um, there's, no, there's really not data to support that. And also one of the big things about this whole brain health story is looking at the gut microbiome and looking at the diversity of the foods that you eat. So if you look at all of the different diverse types of grains, you know, if you throw out that whole food group, you're not developing the colonies of microbacteria in your, in your gut that feed on those. Mm -hmm. um, so it's part of gut diversity. It's part of adding a high fiber food to your diet. Um, what I do like people to avoid is using all-purpose white flour. And that takes a little bit of practice, but it's really easy to do. And I have to say, I probably, I mean, I have it on hand for maybe making like the chocolate cake that my kids like on their birthday, mm -hmm. but you know, maybe once you're up, the bag of all-purpose, but I don't really need to use it anymore because there's so many alternatives now that are more nutrient dust and actually better tasting. Like net flours or just different types of grain flours. I'm looking Absolutely. at all your recipes. I love using almond flour. I love using hazelnut flour. I use ground up pecans in my flour sometimes. Um, I use buckwheat flour, which is a gluten-free flour. Mm -hmm. um, I use spelt flour. 
I use a lot of corn flour. High quality corn flour can actually be really good um, as opposed to some of the cornmeal that you buy at the grocery store. So it's definitely one of those areas where reading labels is important to know that you're getting a good project that's actually more nutrient dense than what you're giving up. Mm -hmm. Does one have to be a good cook to eat a brain healthy diet, right? Because processed foods are typically more inflammatory. How much you know, self-preparation and cooking do you have to do? I don't think you have to be a great cook. I think, it's, I think it's a matter of simplifying your diet more than anything else and not relying so much on fast food and um, some takeaway. Because you can make very simple foods and very simple meals with just high quality whole foods. You know, let's say you get a salmon share at the farmer's market. You'll have that in your freezer all year long and you can just have a piece of salmon and cut up some vegetables, cook some brown rice or black rice, and you know you can drizzle on some soy sauce or sriracha or whatever you like. You got a really easy meal. You don't really even barely have to cook it. Um, I don't think that cooking skills are really all that important. Although what I like people to learn is to not rely on like grilling at high heats, searing things at high heats, and putting things in the oven and just totally blasting them at a high heat. Because mm -hmm. even if you start with you know, pretty good whole foods, then you might, you know, it might blast out the vitamin D, it might get rid of the EPA and the DHA that your brain needs. Um, a lot of those food and phytonutrients are actually heat sensitive. So it's a matter of cooking things low and slow. Um, having a crock pot is really helpful in terms of cooking meats slowly. And all of that will definitely increase the brain health nutrition of the food. And you said poultry was healthy. How about eggs? And then I was just thinking like breakfast. Yeah. I need to cut the cheese off my eggs, but I love eggs. <laughs> I love eggs too. And you know, the egg, eggs have been very controversial, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you know. And, and as it comes to brain health, they kind of have been flip-flopping a little bit. But once, once the medical community and the scientific community started to understand dietary cholesterol, um, eggs are now seen in a much more favorable light. So we used to think that the cholesterol in the yolks would raise your blood cholesterol. And like I said, there's a strong relationship between your LDL, your bad cholesterol, and your risk of Alzheimer's disease, as well as heart attack and stroke. So we want you to have a super low LDL as, as much as possible. And if you're eating a lot of eggs, then the fear was that that could raise it. Well, it turns out that's only true in about 15% of the population. There are some people that are hyper responders meaning that their cholesterol is just really sensitive to dietary cholesterol. But for the rest of us, um, our dietary cholesterol really just goes up in the face of saturated fat. Saturated fat is what stimulates the liver to increase the LDL. So eggs are fine for most people, but you know, if you check your cholesterol on a it, once a year basis and you're an adult, you've been tracking it for a while, then you know if you have a cholesterol problem or not already, mm -hmm. most likely. So if you have you know, pretty good cholesterol or very good cholesterol, then I would say that eggs are not um, uh, something of concern. And I would definitely add them into your diet because what the eggs can do for your brain is give you a lot of lutein and a lot of choline. And these are two substances that promote um, blocking of the inflammation from um, other things going on in your body that are really, really important. You can get that from eggs, you can get that from chicken. Um, you know, of course, the, the Mind Diet doesn't really tell you what kind of chicken to buy, but, you know, I think that some chicken is definitely better than others. You know, chicken that has been fed soy and corn and other inflammatory type foods are, is mm -hmm. going to be inherently pro-inflammatory in your body. 
So just get the best chicken you can afford, the best meat you can afford. Um, eating less meat in general is definitely a part of the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet. Um, it's not saying you don't have to give up meat entirely, but both of these diets are largely 90% plant-based. So we're using meat less as the centerpiece of the plate and more like, you know, a little bit of prosciutto sprinkled on top or a three ounce piece of steak that goes along with your big salad with nuts and seeds and beans in it. Awesome. When does one start a brain healthy diet? Is this something that we need to do right away when we're kids? Is there a like, you know, you should start it at age 30? Is 55 to 65 too late? It's kind of like you write smoking. They say, you know, you can regenerate a good portion of your lung health once you quit. Right, right. Well, you know, the, okay, so the reality is that people, in my experience, start to get interested in this brain healthy diet when they get someone in their family who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And that's mm -hmm. happening more and more. Um, sadly. So they, they end up getting hold of me or reading some books and get on the brain health program. But that's not really what we want, right? What we want is to people to be aware of the brain health benefits of eating these neuroprotective foods early in life. And so midlife is a really important time to have a brain healthy diet. A lot of studies have midlife like 36 my age or 30 no, <laughs> or midlife. <laughs> Most studies define it as between the ages of 45 and 65. Okay. I'm not going to. It's this 45 to 65 age group has been studied intensively in terms of, you know, what are the things that we do that will increase our dementia risk, which ones will decrease it. Mm -hmm. And so the brain healthy diet has just been really studied in this group. And it's super important to get on the program at midlife, but it's also really important to start earlier in life. And ideally I would say that these habits start in kids and teenagers learning about what foods are brain healthy and what ones aren't because the thing about brain health it's it's not all about just preventing alzheimer's you know somewhere down the line decades decades in your future mm -hmm. um you know if you're following a brain healthy diet now as a teenager or a 20 something then you're going to optimize your brain function you're going to have more executive function you're going to have a better memory you're going to be happier you're going to sleep better there's a huge interlap between uh, what you eat and your mental health, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, all of those things. And so I would say that it's crucial in the younger age groups as well. And there's huge amounts of data now to support that. So as soon as possible, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm part of a nonprofit organization um, that is now actually going into schools and teaching brain health, starting That's in awesome. elementary schools, you know, because the habits that you grow up with tend to be the habits you have as an adult. Mm -hmm. So like if anyone has kids who are in high school or younger and, you know, sometimes it's just really hard to get the kids to eat what you want them to eat. That's good for them. Mm -hmm. You know, you just, you just have to keep leading by example. And even though they might resist it when they're young, um, I guarantee that when they're out and they have their own kitchen and they're doing their own cooking, they're going to start reaching for those foods that are familiar to them. I was thinking I was raised on like Kool-Aid and all of that fun stuff, but hopefully I eat healthy enough that it has undone some of that. Um, how do you get it out? <laughs> what resources are out there? You've got the Brain Health Kitchen, your website. Where would you send people to go to find out more and if you have any upcoming workshops or online things that we can tell people Oh, absolutely. About? So I have a lot of resources on my website. I also offer a newsletter it goes out about once a month and I share recipes that are brain healthy that I've developed. And I also do a synopsis of the latest research 
you know, there's brain health studies coming out all the time. And sometimes what you see in the headlines are not actually what's going on. So I'd like to sort of, um, you know, digest that into little, little bites that people can take home and actually um, turn into um, good habits for brain health. There's also some good books on the topic. One is called, This is Your Brain on Food by Uma Naidu. This talks about the interface between mental health and brain health. Um, another physician who spends a lot of time in the Valley is Dr. Drew Ramsey. He's a nutritional psychiatrist. He has a new book coming out called Eat to Beat Anxiety and Depression. That's a fantastic that's resource cool. for um, mental health. And that's coming out in March. He also has some other books out there. Um, I'm working on a book now, but you have to wait a little while for it because I'm still writing it and then it has to be published. So um, there will be a cookbook of sorts from me that will actually just show you how to make this really easy and how to incorporate it into your life. And yeah, I'm, also, I'm also, I also share recipes on social media, mostly on Instagram at Brain Health Kitchen and sometimes at Facebook as well. I was going to say, you need to have a book so that, you know, people can gift it to, you know, their parents or like, you know, caregivers, things like that. So. I would love that. I would love that. Awesome. And do you have any upcoming workshops? I don't, I don't have any right now. I am teaching down in Mexico at Rancho La Puerta in April. There'll be my first in-person class in about a year. So I'm excited about that and hopefully can get vaccinated before I head down there. Um, I'll be heading to Italy this fall to teach again at Monteverde at a wellness conference that I've been doing there for the last few years. And um, I do a lot of private classes here in the Valley and also speaking events for any group of people that wants to get together to learn more about brain health. Um, and then in the after pandemic, hopefully we'll get back to doing hands-on cooking classes mm -hmm. as well, because they're really fun. Awesome. And then just aside from all of the brain healthy cooking and all of that you do in your own health routine, what one practice or habit has been most powerful for you? Well, outside of getting rid of those brain unhealthy food groups, because I had a sweet tooth, big sweet tooth, um, I would say that changing the, the way I eat. So I started doing intermittent fasting about, I don't know, three years ago, mm -hmm. mostly because I'm not a breakfast eater. And so it was easy for me to, you know, just not bother with making breakfast. Once my kids were at college, I wasn't, I wasn't doing the breakfast routine anymore. And I just have a cup of black coffee or a cup of tea or just water for most of my morning. And that has become a really powerful tool for me to help me improve my sleep, to improve my, co my, uh, my concentration, especially in the mornings. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time working at my computer in the mornings, and it's really helps with my mental acuity. And so I would say that intermittent fasting, which is certainly not for everybody, but there mm -hmm. is data to back up the fact that it may be a good tool to help you prevent dementia, um, that might help you prevent your sleep, and also it reduces the, just the amount of food that you eat in a normal day. Uh, most Americans are eating enough food. Most Americans can give their brain a little break from the processes that you have to deal with when you're constantly metabolizing glucose. So intermittent fasting has been a really positive thing for me. And have you written about that or is there a good resource for it? I don't think I have. No, I'm writing about it in my book, but okay. I don't have anything currently. You can do a blog post until your book comes out. So. Yeah. Yeah, I should. I should do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for the information you shared. Thank you, Laura. It was really a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Health in the Whole. 
If you liked it, please subscribe so you can hear the next episodes. And remember, this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare provider before doing anything drastic.